Hello to all of our listeners. Before we get to the episode today, we have a couple of exciting updates. First of all, we now have a Patreon. And if you don't know what that is, it's a website where you can give us a few dollars a month in exchange for super exciting perks, like personalized shoutouts, the chance to choose episode topics, and some other cool stuff. We don't make any money doing this. In fact, we actually lose a little bit of money. So your support would go a long way in helping us to keep doing what we love doing. For less than the price of a Starbucks latte, you can support our quest to bring more and more people into our ongoing, Christ-centered conversation about media, literature, and the arts. You can find us at patreon.com slash unreliablenarratorspodcast. But if you don't have any dollars to spare, there are two other totally free ways that you can help us out. Right now, whatever you're doing, whether you're walking the dog or doing the dishes or cleaning the house, take a break for two minutes. Open your podcast app and give us a five-star rating. If you have an extra two minutes after you finish that, please, 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 please write us a review. Ratings and reviews tell companies like Apple that they should recommend our show to more people, which helps us reach a wider audience. We may be the number five visual arts podcast in Granada, that's true, but we don't even show up in the United States charts, so your ratings and reviews can help us change that. Finally, the best and most common way for podcasts to grow is by word of mouth. If you like our podcast, pick up your phone right now and text a friend or family member. Send them a link or tell them to subscribe to our podcast. Your personal recommendations are the absolute best way for us to keep on growing. That's all I have for now. On with the show. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. It's pretty hard to write Satan and have him not be interesting, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. We do have some problems with Milton. There's something that makes the sad things come untrue. What a line! I saw Satan fall like lightning. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets out. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapel. And today, we are discussing a listener request, which is one of the visual art pieces on the Mars Hill list. Uh, it's called The Perfect Imperfection, The Art of Healing, by an artist named Billy Bond. Raymond, how do you feel about doing more visual arts, which we've we've discussed before is not, you know, we're both English majors. This isn't our, this isn't exactly our ball court. Ball court? Ball game. This particular piece reminded me of a discussion that we've had several times before. I guess st- uh, discussion slash debate. Uh, I've had this debate with Trinity, especially on this issue. And that is... Uh, the degree to which art should portray brokenness or portray beauty. And and uh, Trinity was talking about how in recent developments of art, art has moved away from portraying the ideal, portraying happy people, portraying the sort of Apollonian Greek statue uh, of uh, or Michelangelo's David. Uh, because those sort of ideals are crushing to us. And also, they're figures that we can't personally connect with. 
and art has moved away from that towards portraying brokenness and showing how brokenness is okay. And I pushed back on that. I, I sort of debated her on that point because from my point of view, I think that we've, we've lost something when we have moved away from accepting an ideal as an ideal, right? There is something beautiful about Michelangelo's David, even if it makes me personally insecure about how unmuscular I am myself. I mean, it goes back to that old, whole Petersonian idea that the ideal is also a judge. And maybe we should reconcile ourselves to that and use it to inspire us and move us forward rather than sort of, let's say, like lowering the standard, so to speak. But I understand where she's coming from. And also, I don't necessarily disagree that we shouldn't portray brokenness. But the question is, what is the right way to portray brokenness? How are we to reconcile that with the need or our calling as Christians to be fully sanctified? It's a tough question. And it's definitely a question that is that this artist takes a stance on, I think. And so that's a good introduction to, to the piece itself. So The Perfect Imperfection is an art exhibition that was originally shown as an exhibition at the Riflemaker Gallery in London uh, back in 2017. The official tagline... There's, there's a little bit more that's written about this, but what's written right underneath, like, this is The Art of Imperfection, which is described as a collection of work exploring the fragility and resilience of the human condition through the violated materiality of the portrait. We're going to talk a little bit about that phrase, violated materiality, later, because I'm not totally sure I know what that means. Um, and there's some interesting implications there. But first of all, a more general overview Uh, So this is an exhibition that's supposed to explore psychological trauma and then healing. So specifically focusing on hurt or, or trauma that's occurred to the mind. So psychological trauma. And then it's being portrayed, uh, the artist says, as a physical narrative through a sculpted portrait. So every single art piece as part of this exhibition is a portrait. So it's a sculpted head. Every single one is is a face. And they each portrait looks pretty similar to the kind of thing you might expect if you were in the the ancient Greek section of your art museum, right? So each one looks like a bust uh, with, a, with a head that looks kind of Grecian like you might see um, sculpted in ancient Greece. Or in ancient Rome. The original exhibition is, is described as, the, as beginning their journey in the traditional sense of realistic representation. So the goal is to be lifelike. The goal is to show faces that look like real faces. But then she describes it, or Billy Bond describes it, as using a process of destruction and repair to convey a journey of grief and trauma to healing and well-being. So in general, this is described as a narrative. We're supposed to be seeing a journey from trauma, um, destruction, harm, hurt, to ultimately healing and well-being. So a full story circle happening here. An actual quote from the artist is, I try to open the window to the soul, force its pain outside expose its rawness in an attempt to heal the damage and to make it better. For me, the process or performance of making is the art. So if I were to describe some of these pieces themselves, Billy Bond is playing on an old 
practice of taking broken ceramics, so broken ceramic pottery, that sort of thing, and then uh, fixing it by sort of suturing the cracks with gold. And so this artist is doing that for these pieces, but they're human faces. So each one looks like a kind of broken, cracked human face. They all look much older than they actually are intentionally. Uh, but all the cracks are sort of filled in and covered over with gold. And they all have titles. So, for example, uh, there's one self-portrait. <laughs> That's a, a woman's face. And the woman looks a little bit pained. <laughs> a little bit like she's been through some difficult, some difficult times. You can only see uh, about half of her face. And then the other half is sort of cracked over. And then there are, there are gold lines covering all the cracks um, across her whole face. Uh, so that one's called Self-Portrait. And then we have Inner Being 1 and 2. Also um, a woman's face showing two different parts of the same of the same ceramic. And then we have Principles of Fortitude. There are also two. So there's Principles of Fortitude 1, Principle of Fortitude 2. Uh, also two different sides showing a man's face. Um, two different halves, two different sides. Uh, half the face is sort of covered over with this cracked gold and then half the face is m more intact. Um, and I could go on, but they all look very similarly to that. There are a couple that are different. Um, there's one that I'm not seeing on this page. I think it was a later edition, but it's a face that's sort of entirely made of black, black stone and it's cracked, shattered on the ground. And you can only see part of the face because most of it is shattered. Right. So here's the name of the art practice. It's called kintsugi. It's Japanese. It means golden joinery. And it is, and here's, I'm reading from the Wikipedia here, Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with lacquer, dusted, or mixed powdered gold, silver, or platinum. As a philosophy, it treats breakage and repair as part of the history of of an object rather than something to disguise. So maybe that's what she was getting at with the materiality or something. And so there's a definitely a precedent for the practice that she's embodying here. Yeah. I think that the the thing that she's developing on is she is using this practice to apply and applying it to sculptures of people as opposed to just pottery. Right. And so that says something. She's she's uh, sort of developing on the practice and sort of mapping it onto the human experience. And when you were going when we were going through this, you found a really interesting quote, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, so for the third, she has a quote attached to each one of these art pieces. And imagine my surprise when I'm reading through and I see that for the art piece Principles of Fortitude. The quote that she has selected is Leonard Cohen. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, which longtime listeners of this podcast will remember. Uh, we talked a lot about that quote when we were first starting to record because it relates to our name, Unreliable Narrators, and also to uh, the visual art that is our that is our podcast logo. So we're really coming full circle here. And you know... Going back to this general debate that I've been having with Trinity, uh, I think that this is really where where the crooks of the matter is. Uh, I remember as an undergraduate, I took 
a course on Paradise Lost, 16th century British poetry in Milton. And this is where I was confronted with this idea called the fortunate fall. And the fortunate fall is the idea that at least this is a way that Paradise Lost has been traditionally interpreted. What happened, our disobedience of God actually ended up being a good thing. In fact, maybe we should have done it because our disobedience is what brought about the resurrection. A greater thing came than perhaps what God would have originally intended by virtue of the fact of our disobedience. And you can see that when reading Milton, it is a little bit difficult to get away from that interpretation. Certainly, Satan seems to be the main driving force of the story, and things wouldn't be very interesting if you just had Adam and Eve talking to each other in the garden because, you know, they're just not quite as interesting as Satan. We just got to face up to that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. And so if you're reading Paradise Lost as theology, you would definitely come to the conclusion that, yeah, we ate the apple, but maybe we should have because we grew up a little. We grew mm-hmm. up a little. We became a little bit stronger from the process of having been broken. And and that is actually true in the case of, uh, medically speaking, if you break a bone and that bone heals, it will heal stronger than it was before. The question is, should we really accept that as theologically accurate? Certainly, as a life philosophy or a philosophy for experience, I'm thinking of, in particular, William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience, it's not untrue, you know. Right. It is sort of a a kind of wisdom that a father might pass to their son, you know, or a parent to their child, is you got to go out there and make mistakes because that's how you learn from them. In the Eastern Church, so in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's a lot of emphasis placed on this idea of theosis, right? Which is this idea that... You are, throughout your life, progressing and growing to greater Christ-likeness. And that in the end, when everyone is raised, right, in the resurrection, that the saints are going to be transformed to be something, something more than human, right? They're going to be a transformed body and a new likeness in the way that Christ is. Which is why it's called theosis, is that in the sense you are actually becoming divine, right? You are becoming, in substance, what Christ is. Uh, You're going to be a lowercase god, right? Which sounds a little bit scandalous. (laughs) Um, Well, it's in the Psalms, right? Yeah. (laughs) God says, ye are gods, right? So, if that's true, right? So, if we're considering this idea that we are all really undergoing this process of divination, that we are all becoming... We are little Christs who are becoming more and more like Christ until we are what he is in the resurrection. If that's what the process of life is, and if that process requires suffering, then I think a little bit in answer to your question, yeah, there are going to have to be some cracks in there, right? You're going to have to be broken because Christ is also broken before he's he's raised and, and transformed and ascends into heaven, right? So... If we are undergoing the same process that Christ is going through, then we also are broken and crucified and then uh, and then rise. So in that sense, yes, of course. 
Um, my question really that arises from looking at this exhibition is it's a celebration of the cracks, right? So you're drawn, your attention is drawn to the broken parts of these faces, right? When you look at one of these portraits, you don't immediately look at the whole part. There's always a portion of the face that's pretty untouched, right? That's pretty unbroken. That's not the part that you focus on. You're immediately drawn to the brighter colors, which is in the gold. So there are all these gold cracks and you're looking at the cracks or you're looking at the part of the face that's sort of covered over with um, a brighter color. I think it's pretty clear that we're supposed to be celebrating in some sense the cracks, right? This is the perfect imperfection. The imperfection is the part that is perfect that we that we are celebrating. It's really the valuable thing. It yeah. I mean, monetarily speaking, I mean, yeah. it's gold. It's actually gold that they're using to glue these pieces back together. My question is whether whether that's how accurate that is. Are we celebrating? So if suffering is good, right? Because if suffering is what gets us, we, we celebrate the cross, right? We venerate the cross. The cross is a symbol of suffering. Perhaps the cross is a crack um, and that's how the light gets in. So if that's true, then I understand the idea of celebrating the cracks or celebrating the suffering maybe more than the rest of the art piece. But what about the fact that in the end, theoretically, Christ is raised... Christ is raised as something something new. Christ descends into heaven. We care about the resurrected Christ and want to to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate Easter for a lot longer than we celebrate Lent <laughs> or Good Friday, right? Um, that's a longer celebration. So I don't really know. I'm a little torn. I have an, I have something that might be an answer to that question, but before. I get to that. I want to make the dilemma worse, as you did. Great. <laughs> let us make this. <laughs> let us make this even more complicated. <laughs> so, so here's my question: Why, why, wh- how is the fortunate fall, or the, the idea of the Pauline idea of his strength is made perfect in our weakness? Yeah. Or this, I the the idea of. The risen body of Christ coming back better than before. And that and that this this sort of narrative where we have to go through this process of darkness as a necessary pathway to the light. How is this different in any really fundamental way from paganism? It seems to be very easy to map map on to the pagan story and the Christian story and say these it's kind of the same thing like oh yeah good is evil is just the flip side of good they're both flip sides of the same coin they're kind of interchangeable um, there's no real distinction between good and evil and you can see that clearly people have seen the association in this especially in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar mm-hmm. where Judas is portrayed as an anti-hero yeah. Judas is portrayed as a sympathetic character like Satan because he brought about this uh he brought about the resurrection by his betrayal. Or there's um a musical that I've been interested in recently yes, uh, yes, by yes. Stephen Schwartz who wrote Godspell which is the most well-known musical 
Like, this, this, that's more well-known than the one that I've been listening to. But he also wrote a musical called Children of Eden, in which Cain is a very sympathetic character and sings basically the I want song of the musical where what he wants is is paradise, right? He wants to be not lost in the wilderness. <laughs> he wants to be, to have favor with God and to be what he's supposed to be, right? He wants to reach perfection. <laughs> he wants to reach the resurrection. Um, and he has kind of a point in Schwartz's musical because the, the first words of the song are, I never made this world. I didn't even lose it. And I know no one said it was fair. But they had a garden once. They had the chance to choose it. They gave it away, including my share. And now we're lost. I never made this world. I didn't even lose it, right? It was my parents that did that. <laughs> they ate the apple. What am I supposed to do now when I didn't earn the suffering that is happening to me? So I think that's just another example of, of what you were just saying. Right. And there was actually another point that you made that you've talked to me about, about Paradise Lost, where you were talking about the similarity between Satan as a character and the Greek heroes. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you want do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So in ancient Greek culture or in most Greek myths, uh, the classical Greek hero typically ends up fighting the gods in some way. So anyone who's read the Iliad knows this, right? The gods all take sides in the Trojan War. And so often Greek heroes find themselves struggling with gods, fighting gods. And sometimes they win, right? Uh, or you have the story of um, Heracles, who's the Greek hero who has most commonly been compared to Christ, who is hated by Hera because he is the son of Zeus and he's an illegitimate son of Zeus. And so Hera hates hates Heracles. And I, I can say Hercules because most people know him by the name, the name Hercules. Um, she hates Hercules. And so Hercules has to undergo all of these labors and trials. And then ultimately he... Uh, has a sad end to his life, but he triumphs over Hera in the sense that he is glorified and becomes a god, right? So he he's able to ascend. Um, or you have uh, Achilles, who literally fights a river god <laughs> when he's angry over uh, his comrade-in-arms Patroclus' death. Or you have Odysseus, who struggles with, fights against, effectively, Poseidon, who's trying to block his his journey home. And eventually, Odysseus is able to reach his homeland of Ithaca, but it's despite the best efforts, right, of this god who is trying to stop him. So classical Greek heroes contend with gods. They fight gods, right? And often they succeed. And that's part of the Greek story is that there are gods who help you and there are gods who hurt you. But ultimately, the the greatest humans are the ones who overcome, who are assisted by the gods to the point where they overcome the gods who would hurt them. That's what Satan is, right? Satan is a, a hero who contends with gods or with God, wants what he wants and does not want to be in subjection, which is also a primary goal of the classical Greek heroes. He tries to fight God, but he loses because the whole point is this is an epic, right? This is Paradise Lost is an epic in the style of the Iliad and the Odyssey. This is supposed to be the Christian epic. But if we're going to write a classical epic, you have to have a classical hero. And if you're going to have a classical hero, you have to have someone who's going to contend with gods and the only character in the creation story that fits that bill is Satan. 
So we have Satan contend with God, but he loses because of course he has to. So we take a classical hero, we put him into the Christian context and discover that actually he doesn't have any power here at all. It is true that, you know, if we were to, if we are to take the Greek myths and retell them in a Christian perspective, then it would necessitate that Satan is somehow defeated. And that's interesting, too, because that also implies that the Greek heroes, in some sense, were, were Satan. They were opposed to God somehow, and what they need to do is to be defeated somehow. The question is, how is Satan defeated? And would you say that in Paradise Lost, that he is really defeated in a sort of, in the way that Satan was defeated on the cross? Well, what does it take to defeat Satan? I mean, it does say that, you know, you, you know, he, he shall crush, he, he shall crush your heel and, and you shall crush his head. There is mm-hmm. a, an attitude of strength there. Um, but part of one of the central points of the, the narrative of the cross is that there was something woven into the fabric or the law of the universe that meant that necessitated that Satan had to be defeated in a certain way. And I think probably a really good, this is a really good articulation of this is C.S. Lewis talking about the idea of the deep magic, right? Mm -hmm. What was he trying to get at when he was talking about the deep magic? The white witch comes to Aslan and says, have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Do you not know that every traitor belongs to me? His law is my property. And then Liam Neeson replies, at least in the Disney version, do not cite the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. (laughs) Right? Great moment in the movie. That wasn't actually directly from the text. But then, but then, and then he's resurrected. He comes back and he says, if the witch knew the mean true meaning of sacrifice, she would have interpreted the deep magic differently. And the deep magic from before the dawn of time dictates that if a willing, uh, a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and death itself will turn backwards. He's doing more than just, well, he's, I mean, it's a Christian story, but he's also making a very specific point. He's saying the universe has laws. It's written. There's something powerful in the fact that it's written, in instantiated into the DNA of how the universe works. And there's a law that says he's, he's defeating the law by the law. And he's saying there's a deeper law that says that if I die in the place of the victim, I can defeat Satan. And my question is, do we see that law written into Paradise Lost? Or is Satan merely defeated by virtue of the fact that there is a force stronger than Satan? In which case, I don't see an instance of good countering evil. I see a stronger force overcoming a weaker force. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I don't, I think that the way Milton portrays the struggle is more in the direction of stronger force overcomes a weaker force. But with the added twist of this was just all foreordained. 
Right. So it's not so much this is just the way that the universe works or that there's something in the laws of the world that means that this is what's going to happen. It's more there there are like it's it's kind of a Greek fates idea. The fates are down there spinning their tapestry, cutting their threads, and this is just what was foreordained by something that is maybe perhaps greater than than God, at least in you know, Milton's universe, which he, he sort of has to do to make it an epic, I suppose. It has to be a little bit too Greek, maybe, <laughs> for true Christian tastes. Right, right. I think that there's something about, I mean, I think that the fact that he was trying to write it in classical style, which is, I guess, really neoclassical style, maybe what he inadvertently accomplished was actually embodying a non-christian idea yeah and so and so i guess i'm problematizing milton in that regard i i think that maybe he he was wrong there in that in that sense to be clear we love milton i do we just also have some problems with milton (laughs) we do have some problems with milton he he i think he needed to come on our podcast we could have talked to (laughs) talk to him about this this is interesting talking about Paradise Lost and everything, but what what does Paradise Lost have to do with the perfect imperfection? Okay, so the initial question I was coming back to, and you were talking about this too, is the the presence of the scars and holding on to the memory of the scars in the risen body, right? Should the resurrected body retain the memory? of of the past brokenness and is that necessary and is that a christian idea well there is a very interesting account in the gospel of luke about are you about to talk about doubting thomas and the stigmata (laughs) i will i am going to read to you i'm going to read to you this uh, this passage from the gospel of luke so the the disciples got up and returned. This is from this is from Luke twenty four verse thirty three through thirty seven. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, "It is true, the Lord has risen, and has appeared to Simon." Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized w- w- by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. What's interesting about that is the fact that, at least in the text, Jesus does seem to just kind of appear out of nowhere. You know? It yep. is kind of like in the, that those those movies, in those romantic comedies, you know, those comedies where somebody is like just somehow pops out of the frame. Yep. <laughs> you just look over like, oh, where did you come from? That's what this that's what the scene seems to be like. So he does seem like a ghost. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And this is actually not the passage where Thomas talks about feeling the holes in his hands, but you know what I'm talking about. Actually, I don't know where the passage is that yeah. he talks about yeah. that. But, yeah, it. I, I mean, 
it's interesting that th- this is something that the writers of the gospel thought was important to include. The fact that Jesus retains the memory of the crucifixion in his body. Now that tells us something. Because we are meant to imitate Christ, and we are to become little Christs, and to acquire a risen body, that when we acquire a risen body, it will be like Christ, in the sense that the scars of our past life will still be with us. We will have the holes in our hands and feet. And what does that mean? And yeah, the stigmata, I, I, don't, I don't come from a church background where the stigmata has been talked about very much, so I don't know much about it. It does seem a very strange thing. I know that it has, it has a kind of a weird history. If I can, so for any listeners who don't know what the stigmata are, the stigmata is just the term for the marks on the, the, those scars on the hands and feet, and then sometimes on the head from the crown of thorns or on the shoulders and back from carrying the cross and from being whipped and from all that. Uh, and in some Christian traditions, mostly uh, Catholic, the, the Roman Catholic tradition, and then perhaps in the Eastern Church, although I haven't heard a whole lot about that, um, there are certain saints who uh, will be marked by the stigmata. So the scars of Christ will appear on their on their body. Um, which, you know, whether or not you think that is something that has really happened, um, whether or not that's part of your faith tradition, it does at least demonstrate that historically it's been important in the church, this idea that in imitating Christ, part of what we are imitating or part of what we receive are his scars um, in our suffering. I think that that is a really interesting thing also about the about Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, by the way. I, I can't fully love The Passion of the Christ. I think that there is a certain amount of gruesomeness that maybe shouldn't have been there. But again, he was trying to make a specific point with with the focus on on the scars and that's actually the opening quote is from Isaiah specifically the quote where it says by his wounds we are healed you can interpret or look at the Christ, uh, at the crucifixion at the passion and emphasize a lot of different things about it but i think the point of the passion of the christ is the emphasis on the wounds Mm-hmm. They really want to bring attention to that fact. It, it, it may, I may go so far to say that historically speaking, Jesus may not have been as brutally, uh, brutally scourged as he was in the in the Gospels, and I mean in the in the Passion of the Christ in the film. Um, there is actually some scholarly dispute over that. Some people would say that it was worse. Um, some would people would say that it was a little bit exaggerated. I know for a fact that some that a lot of that people have argued that the Roman soldiers were actually portrayed a little bit more demonically than they would have, because they were very professional with their jobs. So there may be an aspect of it that was done a, that was a little bit over the top, but we gotta pay attention to the opening title card. What was the artistic vision? Of this story. It was by his wounds we are healed. So mm-hmm. there has to be something about the wounds which are important there. And that's the last shot of the movie. Is Jesus stands up and, and you see the holes in his hands. 
And so that's one interesting thing. And you know what? Another interesting thing about the Passion of the Christ, which I, which I thought was very poignant, actually, was Satan. I thought Satan was very interesting. It's pretty hard to write Satan and have him not be interesting, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. True, true, yes. It is, it is a problem. But Satan was particularly interesting in this case. Um, and it's, it's extra scriptural, you could say, because uh, the Passion of the Christ is pretty closely follows the dialogue of Jesus in the last 12 hours of his life. But this, this element of Satan is almost entirely visual. And the few things that Satan actually says are not directly lifted from the Gospels. I think the only time that Satan has a direct line is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says to Jesus, do you really think that you could take on the full weight of the sins of the world? So it's a taunting. Mm-hmm. But there's no there's no place in the Gospels where Satan actually says that. Yeah, that is interesting that one of the most interesting things in the movie is something that is not from the Bible at all. But I also did really like the fact that the it, it was a really it was really powerful in the way that he kept on showing up, the way that he's portrayed played by a woman with the voice of a man, that he has sort of centipedes crawling around him all the time. And he's carrying a demon child at some point. He's always sort of moving in slow motion, which sort of suggests that he's living in a different dimension. And then yeah. finally, in the last shot, in the last shot, um, when Christ finally draws his last breath, there's kind of this jump shot where the camera switches into a quote-unquote another dimension. It sort of looks a little bit like the Upside Down from Stranger Things. It's like you, sh- you switch into the Upside Down and you see Satan falling down at his knees with flames around him, just crying out to the heavens and screaming uh, this horrifying demonic scream. And, of course, the significance of that is that Satan has been defeated. That's the point. And I was telling this to one of my friends who who hasn't seen The Passion. He said he, he hasn't really decided whether he wants to see it or not. And he's like, wow, I had no idea that all of that existed. But the the story, the dimension of defeating Satan as part of the gospel narratives is never something that is directly attended to mm-hmm. in the gospels themselves. So what do you think of that? What should we make of that? I think that in the Gospels themselves, because the Gospels are meant to be largely historical narratives that are, here's just the facts, right? This is, we. it's supposed to be, or it's presented as trustworthy in part because it's an eyewitness account. Um, these are things that we saw and heard. And so obviously none of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not see Satan <laughs> fall like lightning uh, in the in the parts that they're describing, right? In the events that they went through with, with Christ. Right. But Jesus apparently did see it because that's what he right. said. I see Satan right. fall like lightning from heaven. Got to be like, wow, what, what a line. I saw <laughs> Satan fall like lightning. <laughs> would be pretty cool. <laughs> and we, I would have liked to see that, but we could only take his word for it. So it's true. It's true. 
So, but but it's also sort of baked into the story. Well, okay, I have, I have two big thoughts. The first thing is, it is, of course, important that the fall of Satan, so the defeat of Satan, is prophesied from the very beginning. That's one of, like, two things that we know when the fall happens, right? Is that one of the the, the prophecies that happens, right? This is what's going to happen, is that the serpent is going to uh, bruise bruise the head of Christ and that he is going to crush his head. So bruise the heel we know of that from the beginning. Right. So bruise Christ's heel and then Christ will crush Satan's head. And we know that from the very beginning. And then obviously we have lots of other, it, the, the idea that Satan is going to be defeated is written in a literary sense through all of scripture. But I do think the fact that the gospels don't emphasize that, they don't emphasize the defeat of Satan as a character, as if this were the main personal antagonist of this whole story, does two things. The first thing is, it kind of trivializes Satan, right? It makes Satan and hell kind of not that big of an adversary, even. <laughs> um, there, as it turns out, what do you mean by in that? the end... If we made a big deal out of it, it would trivialize it? Is that what no, you mean? no, no. That the fact that we're not making oh, oh, right. a big deal out of Satan in the Gospels kind of trivializes Satan. Like Satan, in the end, is not worth even talking about, really. Right? It's like in the Great Divorce, all of hell is in that tiny little, tiny little crack in the ground. Right. If a butterfly were to swallow it, then swallow all of hell, then it wouldn't be big enough to have any taste. Exactly. So he, he's not even really worth emphasizing. The thing that's important is the resurrection because the resurrection is the defeat of death. And in a lot of ways, the defeat of death as a, as a concept, <laughs> that's the thing that we, that we focus on more in the gospel narratives than we do on the idea of a personal Satan being defeated. Right. And it's also, we're, we actually even take a mocking stance toward it, towards it when we say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Yeah. Which is actually quite a radical and irreverent stance to take because you are taking literally the most undefeatable, most horrifying, terrifying adversary. The thing that, of all things, should least be treated as a joke and looking at it and saying, you're nothing. Yeah. You're nothing to me. Which is, actually to go back to this art piece, perhaps, a little bit of what she's, she's doing. We're not going to erase the cracks because the cracks are there and they can't be erased. I think maybe in the same sense that we say as Christians, death has been defeated, right? Death, where is your victory and where is your sting? Or grave, where is your, grave, where is your victory, death, where is your sting? Mm -hmm. But we still are going to die, Right? Death is still a thing that's going to happen. And yet we say that death has been defeated because there's something uh, there's something that reverses death, right? There's something that makes the sad things come untrue. But that doesn't mean the sad things didn't happen. It doesn't mean that death doesn't happen. It just becomes a passage <laughs> instead of a finality. So if all that's true, then I'm starting to see maybe why gilding the cracks in gold makes some sense, right? Because we're not going to erase the cracks. The cracks still happen. The cracks don't go away. And the scars of Christ don't go away. But they are transformed, right? They're, they're defeated. The cracks are defeated. And the healing does happen 
the psychological trauma, to use the artist's words, is overcome, um, and we are healed, uh, by his stripes, but that doesn't mean that the stripes disappear, or that death disappears. By his stripes, you, we are healed, yeah, is one of the translations, I think is interesting. Um, yeah, you're turning lead into gold. And you think about, actually, that's another thing about death is that it stinks. That's, yeah. that's actually an important element to it because when Jesus came to heal Lazarus, Lazarus um, he says, roll open the grave. And the uh, response uh, of Lazarus's sisters, who was it? Mary and, um, I forget. Well, anyway, he orders the stone to be rolled away. And Mary Magdalene replies, Lord, forgive me, but he stinketh. And <laughs> that is a direct quote from the scriptures. That's So death smells. It has a foul odor. He rolls away the grave and Jesus wept. That's one version of the story. That's one story. That is, that, that, that is something that exists in the Gospels. You roll away the grave, the foul odor of death pours forth, and we weep. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come, Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, come forth. And then that's a totally different narrative. And instead of weeping, we say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And also, additionally to that, there's a, there's a story in uh, uh, the first or second century of the martyr by the name of Polycarp. And according to the story, when Polycarp was murder, uh, martyred, uh, the smell of his ashes rose up and smelled like baked bread. He had a wonderful smell as he was being consumed by the flames. Uh, but we still have to live with the re reality of death as Alyosha mm -hmm. did in the Brothers Karamazov, because Alyosha is a character, his uh, father figure and mentor passes away, who's a priest, and as the priest's body is decomposing, Alyosha is extremely disturbed by the fact that his body stinks, because he yeah. was hoping that he would sort of smell like Polycarp, because that's what's supposed to happen. That's what's yeah. supposed to happen is in, in, in the Christian narrative, is that death no longer smells... Death is no longer uh, something that should warrant weeping. It's something that has been completely and totally defeated. The gold should shine through, um, but instead uh, we still have the body of lead. I don't think that that's what's being portrayed here in, mm -hmm. in the healing the art of imperfection, though. She is not, in fact, portraying death as the the foul odor where uh, the foul odor accompanied with weeping. And so to go back to our original point of should we portray brokenness or should we portray the Apollonian Grecian ideals of perfection? And the answer is, at least in the Christian sense, neither. That's not what this is. We are not portraying death as something uh, foul and, and, uh, and broken, nor are we portraying 
a figure like Michelangelo's David that has not been broken ever, we are portraying something that is entirely different from either. We're portraying a body that has been broken and put back together and is shining. And the light is shining through the cracks to, to become something more glorious than it was before. And it's not, a, it's not a piece of art that's focusing on the reality of Satan. Satan is not the center of this story because instead of focusing on the power of Satan, it was saying, look, all of Satan's power, it works in my favor. I think that something that's really interesting that's maybe building off what you just said is that I hadn't thought before about how gold is very much like light and gold glints in the light and looks like if you have light shining on it, um, gold can look sometimes not just like there is light reflecting off the gold, but like the light is actually coming from within, right? That the gold itself might be shining. Um, and I like this concept that having the gold filling up the cracks means that when you look at one of these pieces, it looks like there's something inside, <laughs> There's light from within, from within this perhaps resurrected body, if we were going to take that interpretation, mm -hmm. that is expanding outward, but that the only way that we are seeing that light is because there are cracks, which then goes back to our Tori Leonard Cohen quote, right? There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, but we're modifying it slightly. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets out. Ooh, nice. <laughs> So I think that when we're looking at an art piece like this, what we're not seeing really is this portrayal of brokenness, right? Um, we are, in fact, seeing something like an ideal. In fact, the broken body that has been put back together is our new ideal. It's the ideal that replaces that that uh that greek statue that was our ideal but now that that thing has been broken so we either have two choices is either we portray the brokenness as brokenness or we create a new ideal and our new ideal is the risen body we love the resurrection <laughs> we do we do love the resurrection yeah and i think that goes back to in first corinthians 15 which is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. I love 1 Corinthians 15, in part because I do not understand half of it, <laughs> which is so great. Um, and St. Paul talks about the, the mystery of the resurrection and the resurrection of the dead and how we're all going to be changed. Um, and that's where he says, O grave, where is your victory? And O death, where is your sting? And that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, Right. Um, I read a book recently that is quite good. I recommend it. The book is called Everything Sad is Untrue. And it's about a Persian refugee whose mother was being um, persecuted or was going to be persecuted by the committee um, in Iran because she was a Christian and they wanted her to give up the names of all her fellow Christians in the underground church that she was part of and she wouldn't do it. So she left with her children. And they escape to America eventually, but then live a really difficult uh, life of poverty away from their culture and away from their family, right? And so he struggles with this question of, 
he's been through so much suffering, right? He had to leave behind his culture and he left behind his father and he left behind all of these things that he loves and his family, his heritage, and now is here in Oklahoma <laughs> in the United States of America, right? Where everybody treats him as uh, as something less, as something uh, subhuman. And But the title of the book, Everything Sad is Untrue, is this idea that eventually there's going to be something that happens, right? Something so good, so glorious, that it makes all the sad things come untrue. Um, and the epigraph is, is a quote from Brothers Karamazov that's saying basically that idea, that something in the end will come to pass that is so glorious that uh, everything will become part of the eternal harmony. Everything harmonizes and becomes beautiful. And it is important to emphasize that it is the last enemy. Yes. There is a sense of finality to it. So we do have to live with the fact that even as Christians in this on this side of paradise, death still stinks. Yep. And there is still weeping. And there is still brokenness. And when we look at the image of the risen body, even the risen body with cracks, this new ideal that has been set up for this, this is something that God is telling us is a future to look forward to. Um, We still have to wrestle with death as an enemy, as an adversary. That is not a joke. Um, That has to be taken seriously. But I think that that's what, that's what real hope is, and it's a different kind of hope, a different kind of hope than, than the old hope of the, the Greek ideal. It's, a, it's an older and, and wiser hope, maybe a hope with a little bit of wrinkles and scars in it. And so maybe there is something true to that fact, that having a few scars on you, having a sort of tougher hope, there is something really admirable about that. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets out. All right. Well, I enjoyed having this discussion, Sophie. It was good talking with you, old friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great time remembering remembering that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's do this again sometime. Yeah. <laughs> <How about laughs> this would be great. Yeah, how about next week? <laughs> cool. Sounds great. All right. <laughs> See you then. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or write to us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens. And our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Plumperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the song Always by BTS. Until then, friends, the next time you don't prepare for your podcast episode about an intricate and philosophically rich art piece, just talk about Paradise Lost. It worked for us. I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide.